Hello, I'm Abram Van Ingen. And I'm Joanne Diaz. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. Today we'll be talking about Marianne Moore's poem called Poetry. Joanne, would you read that poem for us? I would be happy to. Poetry. I, too, dislike it. There are things that are important beyond all this fiddle. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers that there is in it, after all, a place for the genuine. Hands that can grasp, eyes that can dilate, hair that can rise if it must, these things are important, not because a high-sounding interpretation can be put upon them, but because they are useful. When they become so derivative as to become unintelligible, the same thing may be said for all of us, that we do not admire what we cannot understand. The bat holding on upside down or in quest of something to eat, elephants pushing, a wild horse taking a roll, a tireless wolf under a tree, the immovable critic twinkling his skin like a horse that feels a flea, the baseball fan, the statistician, case after case could be cited, did one wish it. Nor is it valid to discriminate against business documents and school books. All these phenomena are important. One must make a distinction, however. When dragged into prominence by half-poets, the result is not poetry, nor till the autocrats amongst us can be literalists of the imagination, above insolence and triviality, and can present for inspection imaginary gardens with real toads in them, shall we have it. In the meantime, if you demand, on the one hand, in defiance of their opinion, the raw material of poetry in all its rawness, and that which is, on the other hand, genuine, then you are interested in poetry. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) That was actually fun to read. I have not read that poem aloud before, but I found that very entertaining. So maybe we could talk about who Marianne Moore was and what her significance is. So uh, Marianne Moore was born in 1887 in Kirkwood, just outside of St. Louis, where I'm sitting here now. And she grew up in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and she moved to New York City with her mother. And while she was in New York, she got interwoven with a, a, a whole bunch of the leading modernist poets of the 1920s. So she becomes a friend and a collaborator and a fellow writer with H.D. and William Carlos Williams and Wallace Stevens and Ezra Pound and all these others. And, and later she ends up mentoring Elizabeth Bishop as well. So she's really at the center of a whole movement of 20th century American poetry. It's important to understand a little bit of what that movement was trying to do. So the famous notion that Ezra Pound gives us is uh, a call to make it new. And it was a kind of rallying cry against convention and against all the stuff that had come before, basically. And certainly Marianne Moore does that in her poetry. Her first book of poems was selected and arranged by H.D. in 1921. Her second collection in 1924 was called Observations. And that title gets at something really important about Moore's poetry, which is that it is highly observational, often attuned to animals and nature. Uh, She really loved the kind of obscure animals that she came across. She studied biology when she was in college at Bryn Mawr. And so her poetry is really an attempt to take what is very peculiar and give it a kind of sense or order or meaning or structure 
through the kinds of poems that she creates. There's so many things to say about what you just laid out. The first is, maybe some of the fun that I had as I read this poem came from how fresh and accessible her sentences and tone are. A lot of poets love this poem, uh, and readers of poetry love it because it starts with that really funny first sentence. <laughs> I, too, dislike it. There are things that are important beyond all this fiddle. Uh, if a very serious, highly prolific and accomplished poet also dislikes poetry, <laughs> then what hope is there for the rest of us, right? So it's a very, it's one of the funniest um, and most engaging first sentences of a poem that I can think of. However, there's much more to it than just that. When you talk about modernism, that is a deep and broad field yes. of poetic expression. And there's, the whole podcast could focus just on modernism in poetry. Uh, there's so much to say. However, if you just look at that first sentence, the colloquial, accessible nature of that, if you were looking at what was being published in literary magazines up through the end of the 1800s, it is so Victorian, it is so saccharine, it is so didactic and overly formal, mm -hmm. right? And so how do we make poetry feel new, especially in the years during and after World War I, when so many soldiers were coming back traumatized by the horrors of World War I? How do you take all of that highly overblown ornate language of the late Victorians and really speak to the moment in which readers are reading this work. That first line of this poem by Marianne Moore, you know, we're, we're laughing about it. It's a wonderful first line, but it is truly innovative in ways that we have to kind of situate it in its moment. You know, if you just hear this poem, you don't hear that there is, a, there is in fact, a kind of rhyme scheme to it. There is a structure to this. Each stanza, there are five stanzas here, look the same. So she is constraining herself to a certain kind of structure. But what she's doing is that she's playing with those rhymes so that they happen almost in passing. They're completely sort of unaccented rhymes. You almost wouldn't notice that they're happening, except for the fact that she places them at the end of certain lines. Lines. So in and genuine eyes and rise, she has the and we together and what and bat together so that they look the same. They look like rhymes, but they aren't. She she cuts the word baseball in half so that the base there will rhyme with case and did yeah. with valid. I mean, she's just completely playing with all these conventions about how the, the end of the line is supposed to rhyme. And she says, fine, you want your rhyme? Here it is. And she makes it be the base of baseball. That's great. And you know, so what I hear you saying is, yes, of course she is attentive to form and to structure. There's so many great quotes about Marianne Moore and her work. And I'd just like to cite two of them that seem relevant to what you're saying. The first one is from William Carlos Williams, who was her contemporary. And he said this about her work, so that in looking at some apparently small object, one feels the swirl of great events. So that kind of speaks to what you were saying about, yes, she's interested in particulars. Yes, she's interested in uh, what's wild and uncontrolled. And there's a swirling sort of feeling that's in the poem, even as she's a formalist. And then the other quote that I loved was from a Slate article that Robert Pinsky wrote several years ago. And he says that Marianne Moore likes to keep everything shifting and vibrating. Mm. What a wonderful, oh, I just love that he would describe 
her work like that. Mm -hmm. Everything is shifting and vibrating. I feel like that's relevant to this poem because she's constantly resituating what she's trying to say about what poetry is and does and why we should appreciate what it does for us. And part of the shift in the vibration happens within a kind of overriding control as well. And that's where I think the struggle of the poem is made clear, the struggle of, of, of her poetry in general. There's this sense of a search for order over and against a world that seems utterly disordered. In effect, that's what she is saying in that last stanza. If we could skip there and then we'll go back to these, mm -hmm. these lists of these, these strange phenomena. In the last stanza, she has this very famous line that what real poetry, what good poetry offers is imaginary gardens with real toads in them. <laughs> it's such a great line. And, and basically what she's saying is that an imaginary garden, so a garden is a kind of arrangement of things. It, it's a very careful management of things. In fact, one critic says of Morris poetry that basically every poem is a kind of management. And that's what a garden is. But what's in this garden? Well, not just the kind of flowers and vegetables that you want to be there, but real toads. That is the world's real particulars that you may or may not want in your typical poetry stand there staring at you in the face. And if they're not there in your garden, then your poetry isn't real to begin with. It's a kind of triviality. Oh, that that is so... I love that explanation of that line. That makes perfect sense to me because... It feels to me, the more I read this poem, that it really is about that very thin line between my mind and the world. Mm -hmm. it, like, she, she's trying to understand that very, very precise relationship. And she's trying to say, if the poem only is an imaginary space with no referent in the world, it's just going to be this imaginary thing that's, that's just, it has to have some kind of grounding, right? Yeah, and part of what she offers us there, then, is, is a series of things which, if you just observe them, seem strange. A bat hanging upside down or in quest of something, or the strangeness of elephants pushing one another, or a wild horse taking a roll, or a tireless wolf under a tree, or, and I love this, we've got all these crazy animal things that might make us just pause with amazement and wonder, and what's the next thing in the list? The immovable critic, and, and my version has, twitching his skin like a horse that feels a flea. The baseball fan, the statistician. These are the cases of the sort of unimaginable phenomena of the world that need to be imagined into a kind of sense and order that we're trying to understand, that poetry itself is trying to help us understand. So she wants to understand them in order to admire them. That word seems really important too, right? Mm -hmm. Look at the, the a couple sentences in. Hands that can grasp, eyes that can dilate, hair that can rise if it must. These things are important not because a high-sounding interpretation can be put upon them, but because they are useful. Okay, she's suggesting, I think, that poetry is capable of creating a world on the page in which hands can grasp, eyes can dilate, hair can rise if it must. So when, when we read these lines together before we recorded this podcast, you looked at the, grasp, the potential for grasping hands, dilating eyes, and hair rising as fear. And I thought that was so interesting, and I'm sure you're absolutely right. <laughs> however, however, I I am not them. so sure, never sure that I'm absolutely well, right, but, but please continue. I like that. That sounds that, great. Go ahead. No, it is. I, I, think, I think you're probably right. I'm sure I'm wrong, but I read them as amazement. Mm. 
I read them as true, true admiration,、mm. right? So admiration has in its root the word is mira, right? To look、mm-hmm. and to to behold something, and it feels like poetry asks us to to behold the possibilities that she's listing here and our physiological reactions to them. And so when she provides us with that list. The bat holding on upside down, or in quest of something to eat. Elephants put. I had a bat in my bedroom a few <laughs> weeks ago. By the way, did I tell、That's、you、terrible. it flew? It flew、That's、in、terrible. through the garage. It was. I mean, oh. Did you so, experience、yes. fear or amazement? <laughs> I think, yeah, fear. Mostly fear.、Okay. I just didn't want. Anyway,、it. continue. I didn't want, no, I just,、yeah. I'm just curious. Go、okay. ahead. So, so there's fear. <laughs> But then elephants pushing. Elephants are such sentient, feeling, intelligent animals. They're such social animals. So I don't feel fear there. I feel wonderment, <laughs>、yes. right? And then a wild horse taking a roll. That horse is just loving rolling around in the cool grass on a hot day. Like that's just beautiful. Why? Why and how does he know how to do that, right?、Mm-hmm. So a, a tireless wolf under a tree. Uh oh. He's probably eating something, so that's scary. <laughs> But then、uh, the immovable critic. I have twinkling. You have twitching, like a horse that feels a flea. The baseball fan. So I'm I'm rambling here, but it's because I'm really interested in what she's trying to say about physiologically what a poem can do and describe and capture and evoke.、Mm-hmm. You know. And I think it's important to to recognize. I mean, even just in that difference between twinkling and twitching, this poem has gone through many different versions. The fact that you and I are not looking at the same word at the current moment is not. An unusual aspect to this poem, or to other poetry that she wrote, she was an editor. She revised her poetry frequently, and this poem famously went through many different versions until the latest and final version, in 1967, was only the first three lines. Okay, so so here we have this big rambling poem all about poetry, and as you say. In the decades from when she first published this early in her career to much later, she goes from a couple dozen lines to these three more epigrammatic lines. And there are a lot of critics who look at those three lines. I too dislike it. There are things that are important beyond all this fiddle. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers that there is in it, after all, a place for the genuine. That's the poem, right?、Yeah. Okay. What she's faced with is this. Big discursive initial iteration of this poem, and then over the decades, her decision to compress it like that—it's not so different from what we saw in an earlier episode of this podcast, where Langston Hughes,、uh, with the Johannesburg Mines poem, he had multiple versions of that, different line breaks, different stanza breaks, etc. Even Marianne Moore's contemporary, Ezra Pound, when he wrote in a station of the Metro, probably. Probably his most famous poem. It was originally like thirty-six lines long, and then over time he whittled it down to the title plus two lines, and then that had multiple iterations. So you know we have this tendency to imagine that print, once something is printed, especially in the twentieth and twenty-first century, that that means it's fixed, it's polished, it's done. But with these writers, that is rarely the case. And one other element I think we should really talk. About before we leave this poem behind, that makes it sort of new. That is a break with convention. Is the way that she brings in 
prose quotes from other writers into a poetry. Yeah. So there's a kind of found element here. So part of this, po again, you can't see this if you're just listening, but she has quotes in here. Literalist of the imagination is in quotes. And the other thing in quotes here is business documents and school books. Well, these are from actual writings. The first one, business documents and school books, is from Tolstoy. They asked Tolstoy to distinguish between poetry and prose. He says, I can't. I don't really know the difference. Poetry is poetry. Prose is prose. He says, I guess poetry is anything that isn't business documents and school books. And here in this ah. poem, she is basically saying, no, even that can count. At least those are phenomena that we may seek to understand in order to admire, and therefore they're subjects of poetry as much as anything else. That is so, so important. It, it's essential for her poem, but I love how the argument that Tolstoy is making becomes a springboard for her to create her poem. So there's that intertextuality. We've talked about this so many times. Yeah, and the literalist of the imagination is a, is a quote from W.B. Yeats, the poet who was reflecting on William Blake. And he said he was basically saying the problem with Blake is that he was a too real literalist of the imagination. In other words, as far as I can understand it that that he he was making things up too much in his mind and believing in a certain sense too much in the reality of the things that he was imagining uh, so that he basically couldn't come back to earth <laughs> okay and then she's able to take that that critique that Yeats has of Blake and then suggest yes create imaginary gardens let the let the mind go wild but keep a few real toads in there yes. so that it, it has that grounding that's so important it's the meeting between the one and the other that makes for poetry and in a certain sense that's how that last stanza reads to me in the meantime if you demand on the one hand the raw material of poetry in all its rawness and that which is on the other hand genuine then you are interested in poetry. The two things there that I understand are the raw material of poetry is language and all of its structuring devices, including the imagination and all of it gone wild. And the genuine is the particular, the real, the thing you're stumbling across. It's the meeting of those two things that makes poetry. Maybe something that we should emphasize here is that there's a way in which this poem provides a kind of guide for reading Marianne Moore's work and for understanding what she values and privileges as a poet. Yes, a wonderful combination of wit and depth. I mean, you could see the twinkle in this poem itself from that first line forward, but then also a sense of seriousness about the endeavor of poetry itself. So with all of that twinkling and twitching, uh, <laughs> <laughs> would, would you be willing to read this poem again, please? Poetry. I, too, dislike it. There are things that are important beyond all this fiddle. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers that there is in it, after all, a place for the genuine. Hands that can grasp, eyes that can dilate, hair that can rise if it must, these things are important, not because a high-sounding interpretation can be put upon them, but because they are useful. When they become so derivative as to become unintelligible, the same thing may be said for all of us, that we do not admire what we cannot understand. The bat, holding on upside down or in quest of something to eat, elephants pushing, a wild horse taking a roll, a tireless wolf under a tree, the immovable critic twitching his skin like a horse that feels a flea, 
the baseball fan, the statistician, case after case could be cited, did one wish it. Nor is it valid to discriminate against business documents and school books. All these phenomena are important. One must make a distinction, however. When dragged into prominence by half-poets, the result is not poetry. Nor till the poets among us can be literalists of the imagination, above insolence and triviality, and can present for inspection imaginary gardens with real toads in them, shall we have it. In the meantime, if you demand on the one hand the raw material of poetry and all its rawness, and that which is on the other hand genuine, then you are interested in poetry. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am. I believe you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, she's wonderful. Oh, thank you for reading that. For more information about Marianne Moore, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you.